0: Our subject for this evening is the subject of guilt and forgiveness. A lot of Christians running around with a guilt complex going on heavy guilt trips. We're going to see what God's Word has to say about sin and forgiveness. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, this evening as we study Your Word, we ask that You would apply it to our lives. So many of us are so guilty, and that ought not be true of God's people. It's hard for us to serve you and to minister in your name with tears of guilt streaming down our faces. So we ask this evening that you would take your word from the writer of Hebrews, that you would apply it to our lives, that you would enable us by your grace to live it. Forgive the one who stands behind this lectern. We've come here only to see Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Starting at the first verse, of the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. The writer writes these words, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices, which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If the worshipers had once been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God as it is written of me in the roll of the book. When he said above, thou hast neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, lo, I have come to do thy will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now this evening from these verses, I want to deal with the subject of guilt and sin. It's one of the major problems faced by a lot of folks and by Christians. Guilt runs rampant in the body of Christ. Now, that almost sounds like a truism. If you know anybody else or you know yourself, you probably already know sometimes when you feel guilty. But it's important that we say it because you would be surprised how often we miss it. Let me give you a principle that you need to remember. The principle is this. Definition is a prerequisite for resolution. Let me say it again. Definition is a prerequisite for resolution. In other words, if you can define a problem, you can usually deal with the problem. Vague anxiety without definition of its nature and source will simply wipe you out. And so it's important to define the problem before you do anything else. Let me tell you something else. Sometimes, maybe more often than not, definition is not just on the road to resolution, definition itself is the resolution of the problem. Let me illustrate what I mean. I was reading in a little magazine by a motivational speaker in this country about a woman who came to this man and said, Mr. Ziegler, I don't know what I'm going to do about my job. My job is so horrible, it's just frightening. She said, "It is the people are horrible. My boss is awful. I just can't tell you how bad it is. And she said, I, it's, it's just terrible. And Ziegler said to her, Lady, I'm sure it's as bad as you say it is, and I'm also sure that it's going to get a lot worse. And she started to cry and ask him why he said that it was going to get a lot worse. And this is what he said, because I don't believe there is a company around which can survive such a high concentration of poison in one little place. And then while she cried, she said, All right, what can I do? Ziegler said to her, I want you to get out a piece of paper and I want you to write down the things you like about your job. She said, you got to be kidding. There's nothing I like about this job. He said, well, you get paid, don't you? Don't you like that? She said, well, of course. I like the paycheck when I get it. And he said, well, do they, uh, do they provide any hospitalization insurance for you? She said, yeah. She said, well, write it down. That's, that's good. Write that down. You like that, don't you? I said, yes. I said, uh, where do you live? She said, well, I live pretty close to the place where I work. I said, well, don't you like that? She said, yeah. I guess I do. Said, well, write, write that down. Uh, is the place where you work a horrible kind of area, not air conditioned on hot days you just die? She said, oh, no, it has air conditioning. Said, do you like air conditioning? She said, yeah. He said, write it down. And so she wrote down a number of things. And by the time she had finished, there were 22 items that she liked about her job. Mr. Ziegler ran into her some weeks later and asked her how she was doing. And she said this, well, I'm not out of the woods yet, but you would be amazed at how much the people at my company have changed. That lady was now properly defining her problem. And definition is a prerequisite for resolution. Let me tell you what I found to be one of the most common statements I hear. I feel terrible, or I feel anxious, or I feel afraid, or I feel guilty. The next time you have one of those feelings, let me tell you what to do. Now, this is whether you're a Christian or a pagan. It doesn't make any difference. Get out a piece of paper and say, I don't want to just feel this, I want to relate it to something that's very specific. I want to know what it is that makes me feel anxious. I want to know what it is that makes me afraid. What it is that makes me feel guilty, because definition is a prerequisite for resolution. Now, the reason I'm saying all of this is because I believe that one of the least defined problems in the world is the problem of guilt, feeling that some standard has been violated, that guilt inside, and finding out that it's from everything else, or thinking it is. I heard a testimony of a woman uh, not too long ago, and she said that she knew she was a Christian now by looking at her bed. The guy said to her, how can you tell you're a Christian by looking at your bed? You know what she said? She said, before, when I got out of my bed, I looked at it it was all rumples, because I would tossed and turned all night. And now when I get out of the bed and I look at it, it's as smooth as silk. I suppose that if I should define the greatest area of my counseling, it would be with people who feel guilty. If you check out mental institutions in this country, and I did my clinical training at the Harvard Experimental Hospital in Boston. And I want you to know that in almost every case of every patient with which I dealt, I found a significant problem with guilt. Right now, many of you are feeling guilty about one thing or another. Simply haven't defined the problem that way what you said to your wife last night. The time you spanked your kids, and maybe they didn't deserve it. Certainly not as hard as you hit them. Or the sexual, the lust thoughts that you have in your mind. Or maybe, maybe something you did years ago and nobody knows. And if a great sign should be put over your head, uh, telling the world what you had done, you'd absolutely die. I don't know, maybe it's actual lying or cheating. Even on your income tax, maybe it's a little thing. There's something eating away, and you say, I feel anxious, I feel hurt, I feel down, I feel depressed. But the real problem often is the problem of guilt. Now, right now, I want to talk to believers. Nothing that I have to say mostly is going to have anything to do with somebody that doesn't find themselves in a relationship with Christ. So if you're not a believer, you ought to feel guilty. But if you are a believer, you don't have to. First, I want you to note, in our text the requirement for forgiveness. Now this is the only thing I'm going to say tonight for Joe Pagan and Jane Sinek, Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The word sanctified simply means set apart unto God. Every once in a while someone will come to me and say, Pastor, I've been trying to do some of the things that you say when you teach the Bible and they simply don't work. Now the presupposition of my teaching is that the Bible is absolutely true. Every word of it is true. And if I'm faithful in my teaching of the Bible to you and it doesn't work, the problem is not in the Bible, the problem is you. And many times when somebody said that to me, I found out that they simply were not in a relationship with Christ. And no wonder it wouldn't work. One of the major problems in this area is that a lot of people try to make Christian principles work before they become Christians. That's true of a lot of the scripture. There's always a provision in the things Jesus said that he gives to his disciples. And that provision is that you be his disciple. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. He said, these things I've said unto you that your joy might be full. He said, if you believe in me, you're never going to die. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it weren't saw, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive you unto myself. Now, that doesn't apply to the world, ladies and gentlemen. That doesn't apply to your friend down the street. doesn't apply to the man with whom you work. doesn't apply to the students in the same classroom where you study. It only applies to disciples. And part of the American folk religion is we take kingdom teaching only for the members of the kingdom, and we apply it to the world. And so we get this trivial nonsense at funerals about people who don't even know him, but they're going to a better life. Don't you believe it? This is written for believers. You heard about the man who wrote a mail order company asking for plans for a birdhouse. And in the mix-up in the computer, I suppose, instead of sending him the plans for a birdhouse, they sent him the plans for a sailboat. And he tried to put it together, but just, you know, it just wouldn't work. And he couldn't figure what kind of bird was going to live in this dumb birdhouse. And so he wrote a letter back to the people sending the parks, and they wrote a letter back, and they apologized and added a P.S., and it was this. If you think it was difficult for you, you should have seen the man who got your plans trying to sail a birdhouse. (laughs) A lot of people are trying to operate on the plans of Christ when they aren't even a Christian. So a word of caution, make sure, make sure that you know him before you apply the principles. Then secondly, I want you to note not only the requirement of forgiveness, I want you to note the reality of forgiveness. Hebrews 10.1 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. Now that sounds like a complicated thing, but let me explain to you simply what he's talking about. He's using the thought forms of Plato, and those thought forms had been laid out so that he could use them. And I think I've told some of you about the caveman myth with Plato. Plato said if you were chained to a wall and you were chained there with blinders and you couldn't see anything except the wall in front of you and people were walking above you and their shadow was being reflected down on that wall and you did that for years and years and years, after a while, what would be the reality? When you thought of a person, would you think of a real person? No. You would think of a shadow the shadow on the wall, and that would become the reality. Now, Plato said that the problem with us is that, that what we see is only a shadow of a reality. In other words, this lectern is not a real lectern. It's uh, only an imitation of an idea of lecternness, which exists in reality somewhere. Now, the writer of Hebrews, in a very sly way, the same way an evangelist singing in the mountains of North Carolina plays country and western music, The same way an evangelist speaking at Harvard Square learns to play Bach on on his piano. You don't have an organ in the middle of Harvard Square, but on whatever he's playing. This is a translation of God's Word into the thought forms of the time. And what he's saying is the law was the shadow, not the reality. The sacrificial system was only the shadow. It pointed to something that was absolute and real in time and space, and that was when Jesus was sacrificed for sin forever. Let me illustrate, because Plato's illustration, of course, is not as good as mine. Let me illustrate what I mean. If, if I'm really thirsty, one of the most arresting pictures I can see is the picture of a glass of water, right? I mean, I can stand there if I'm really thirsty and look at that glass of water and think, man, I sure would like to have. That looks so cold and so pure. I can imagine in my mind. I can maybe, even if I really work on my imagination, make it feel like I was drinking the water down in my throat. If, if I looked at it, I might even think about going to get a drink of water. But let me tell you something. That picture is not the reality. The reality is a drink of water. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this, that we've been given a shadow. If you've been a Jew reading the book of Hebrews in the first century, the shadow, and it's a reflection of a reality. The sacrificial system, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world is the reality, even Jesus Christ. John 8, 36 says this, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Why is that? Because that's a reality. No sacrifice of a lamb or a goat ever made anybody pure. But it was as that sacrifice pointed to the sacrifice in time and space of Jesus on a cross, vicariously bearing the sins of many. When it pointed to that, Moses was saved the same way you are. Abraham saved exactly the same way you are, by trusting in the blood of Christ. Okay, thirdly, I want you not only to note the requirement and the reality of forgiveness, I want you to know the remedy toward forgiveness. Hebrews 10, 9b through 10. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. I have a lawyer friend who told me that this uh, is defined in, there's a technical legal term that that, uh, it's novation and novation means a substitution of one for the other. And that's what he's talking about here. He abolishes the first, the law, in order to establish the second. And that's Christ. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let me tell you something. Forgiveness doesn't come cheap. Anytime, listen carefully, any time anybody forgives anybody anything, it costs somebody something. We think forgiveness is no big deal Just say, I forgive you. But see, it doesn't work that way. See, if I should go over and punch Ed Brandon in the nose, now Ed's faced with a choice. He can say, Steve, and he's a former Marine, man. I don't punch him in the nose. But if I should, he could say, I'm going to get you, man, and just flatten me out on the floor. But he could say, if he's walking with the Lord, Steve, I forgive you. Now, when he says that, what did it cost him? Cost him a punch in the nose, that's what it cost him. Whenever forgiveness is exercised at any point, it costs somebody something. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that your forgiveness cost God his son. Forgiveness didn't come cheap. Forgiveness didn't come cheap. Jesus Christ died in your place on a cross. Said that during the Middle Ages, you remember that sometimes very wealthy men would hire somebody to go into battle in their place. And uh, then if that once the military obligation was made to the king on the part of the noble by some uh, peon who was hired to do it, then the military obligation was fulfilled. Well, one time a noble was taken to court after the man he hired to fight for him was killed in battle the first day. The prosecution stated that he had not in reality gone to battle. He had not in reality taken the death arrow, and therefore he should be required to go to battle. But the court ruled that he was not required because the man he had hired had gone to battle for him and had died for him. When the substitute died, legally, he died. When the substitute served his time in battle, legally, he served his time in battle. That's not a good analogy. But you can begin to apply to what Christ did for you. He said, I'm going to take your place. You should have been hanging there, but I'm going to take your place. You deserved it, and I didn't. It's going to cost me, but I'm going to take your place. And a Christian is never flippant about his sin or about her sin. I'll tell you why, because we know what it costs. Jesus Christ died in your place on the cross. Fourthly, I want you to note not only the requirement, the reality, and the remedy for forgiveness, I want you to note the reliability of forgiveness, Hebrews 10, 12 through 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet. I was in seminary once, and I got an A on a course, a directed study course in uh, in an exegesis on the Sermon on the Mount. And I got an A on that course when I should have gotten a C. Let me tell you why. Somebody came and told me that I hadn't gone to see this professor in this directed study and that he was going to flunk me out of the class, and I got scared. And I sat down and put a bunch of books on this subject on our dining room table, and I wrote an 80-page paper in five hours. I mean, it was so thick. I just can't tell you. And I went in and handed it this professor, and he was so busy, and he was so impressed with 80 pages, he didn't read it. And he gave me an A. Now when he gave me the A, did I go back to him and say, you got to read that paper, man. It really wasn't that good. It just was a lot, but it wasn't good. No, I didn't. I accepted the A. Why? Because I ought to have gotten the A because the one in authority had given it to me. Because the one in authority had given it to me. Well, it's the same way with Jesus Christ. If I tell you you're forgiven, that an amount to a hill of beans. But if he tells you you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Because he's the king at the right hand of the father, his enemies, his footstool. When he says it, you're forgiven. You say, well, I don't deserve it. Doesn't make a matter of difference. He says, you're forgiven. You say, well, I'm not very good. Doesn't make a bit of difference. He says, you're forgiven. You say, well, I haven't done anything to earn it. Doesn't make a bit of difference. The one in authority has declared you forgiven and free. And it's an abomination to God to say that you're not. Fifthly. I want you to note not only the requirement, the reality, the remedy, and the reliability concerning forgiveness, I want you to note also the reach of forgiveness. This is my favorite verse in this whole text. So wake up your neighbor. 14th verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected, and here come the most magnificent words in the entire world. He has perfected, it's not about me, it's not about you if you're a believer, he has perfected far all time. Those who are sanctified, set apart unto God. Now, friend, that's an exciting verse. That means that in the single offering of himself, Jesus didn't say, all right, I'm going to forgive you your past sins. You've got to make it on your own from now on. He didn't say, I realize you're a bad person. I'm going to forgive you what you're doing right now that's real bad. But after this, you better be clean or you're going to be in bad trouble. He doesn't say that. For all time, going to take all the past, all the present, all the future, and all of that is forgiven. Corey Tinboom, and it's been quoted so many times, but I actually heard her say it one time at lunch. Uh, Corey Tinboom said, God takes our sins and dumps them in the ocean, past, present, and future, and puts up a sign that says, No fishing. And Christians run around fishing all the time. I had a man come into my study not too long ago, and his uh, daughter was going to marry a young man that he didn't like. I thought he was a turkey, too, but I, uh, but I wasn't having to marry them at any rate. But at any rate, he came in, and he said, if my daughter marries that man, I'll disown her. I'll disown her if she marries him. You know what I said to him? I said, you don't mean that. You love her. Let me tell you something, sir. My daughters can't do anything that'll cause me to disown them. Nothing. There is absolutely nothing in this world that Robin and Jennifer can do that will ever cause me to disown them. What have I done? I've forgiven them their past. They're still my daughter. I've forgiven them their present. They're still my daughters. And no matter what they do in the future, they will still be my daughters and will still be forgiven. Finally, I want you to note not only the requirement, the reality, the remedy, the reliability, the reach concerning forgiveness. I want you to note the reminder of forgiveness. Look at Hebrews 10.3. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin year after year. In contrast to the 17th verse, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. Now, in that third verse, the writer of Hebrews is saying something interesting. Every time the priest makes his trek up to offer a sacrifice for human sin, what does that remind you of? Oh, shoot all my sins. I am so bad, and I'm going to have to do it again next week, and the week after, and the week after, another sacrifice, sacrifice after sacrifice." A woman came to me one time who had done something maybe 15 years before that was pretty bad. And her husband told her the week after she had committed this sin, she, he said, I want you to know I forgive you totally. And she says, I know He's forgiven me because every week of my life, He tells me that He's forgiven me. That's what happened. That's what. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here about the sacrificial system. It was a reminder of the sin over and over again. But then down in the 17th verse, note the difference. 17th verse, God remembers no more, and the sacrifice of Christ is not a reminder of your sin, but a reminder of your forgiveness. There was a bishop who was a confessor for a nun, and the nun told him that Christ had revealed himself to her in person. The bishop was was really surprised at that. But he knew this nun and the deep walk she had with the Lord. And so he said to her, Look, the next time he reveals himself to you in person, ask him about the sins of the archbishop, because I'd like to know some of the bad things that he's been doing. And so the nun, because he was her confessor, said that she would act in obedience and do exactly that. A number of weeks later, she came back and he said, Well, did he reveal himself to you? And she said, Yes. Did you do what I told you to do? Did you ask about the sins of the archbishop? And she said, yes, I did. And the bishop said, what would he say? And she said, he said, I don't remember. I don't remember. Girl, uh, one time told me that she'd gone to a Bible study. And she said in that Bible study, the Bible teacher had been teaching that, uh, that it's very hard to hug a stiff kid. She said, that's why we have so many problems in our life, so that we won't be stiff. She said, you ever try to hug a stiff kid? Now, those of you who are working with YFC or Young Life or one of those things or or in the youth ministry here, you know know what it's like. A teenager can be like this if they're really ticked or rebellious. You try to hug them. Try to hug my teenagers, boy, when they're mad, and it is just forget it. You might as well forget it. Then she said, you know, isn't that good? That's why God doesn't want us to be stiff. And she said, I said, that's great. I may use that sometime. And she said, I found out something else too. And I said, what was that? She said, I went to babysit the next, right after the Bible study. She said, I was babysitting with a little two-year-old and he'd been playing in the mud all day. And, and uh, she said, when I walked into his room, he reached up like this just to be hugged. She said, you know what that taught me? And I said, no, what did that teach you? She said, it teaches me that it's a whole lot easier to hug a dirty kid than it is a stiff kid. You're probably dirty tonight. That's what it means to be fallen in a fallen world. But listen, Christian, you're forgiven at a great price. You remember the forgiveness, not the sin. You think about that. Amen. Thanks for listening. And remember that videos of sermons from Steve are right here on the app. Just click the main menu button in the upper left corner then click videos.